hello everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 33 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Alix Peabody, the founder and CEO of Bev. With crisp, fizzy, canned wines, Bev is a female first brand on a mission to transform the alcohol industry. Offering three flavors, all with zero grams of sugar, Bev is available online and in select retailers, including Total Wine, Bevmo, and Target. In this episode, Alix shares her journey from attending boarding schools in Europe as a teenager to working as a headhunter in San Francisco for a recruiting firm to experiencing some serious reproductive health issues, which led her to take the leap into entrepreneurship and launch Bev. Alix talks with us about raising a $7 million seed round, the challenges that come with growing 200% month over month, and how she met her husband, now also her head of marketing, at an airport. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Aleeks. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm so excited to hear your awesome story in building Bev. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you from originally? So I'm originally from New York City, um, but I actually, my family moved to Massachusetts when I was in high school, and I actually went to four different high schools um, in three different countries. So I kind of- Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was the new kid every year of of high school, which was kind of of a strange thing for- Very interesting. Yeah. What countries did you live in and why were you moving around so much? Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, it's actually kind of funny when I was, when I was like, I guess I was 12 or 13. Um, I heard that my school had this exchange program where you could go to a boarding school in France and my mom's French and, and, um, I I could understand really well because, you know, she used to speak to me in French when I was little, but I couldn't, like, I lost my, my ability to speak. Um, and that always really bothered me. So I applied to this, like, this exchange program to go, you know, um, to go to boarding school in France, just without telling my parents just applied, got in, came home, was like 13 and was just like, I'm going, I'm moving to France next year. And they're like, what what are you talking about? Like you're, you're a baby. Um, but then, you know, kind of convinced them and, and they let me go. So I did that. Um, I really got the language bug and and was just really interested in you know studying abroad and all sorts of weird stuff. So I moved I moved back to the states. Uh, went to sophomore year in New York, and then junior year I moved to Italy to study Latin and ancient Greek. And I lived with a host family for a year um, and learned Italian. And then I wow. went. To- yeah. And then I moved back to the States, went to boarding school. Um, so it was kind of for my senior year, which was very, very strange experience, but, um, yeah. Boarding school in the U S for your senior year, huh? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, um, I definitely felt like, you know, uh, sort of an, an alien watching, um, watching a culture from the, from the outside. in. I feel like boarding school was more of a culture shock than even living abroad, but, um, it's kind of, especially your senior year, everybody's super tight and all that stuff. And it's just like, who's, who's that person? (laughs) So your mom, it sounds like spoke a lot of French to you. Um, was your dad American? Yeah. Yeah. My dad's American. And what did they do? Um, so my dad was, um, he was a, he was a venture guy in the early, in his, in his early days, he actually, he went to school was, um, was a lawyer for a hot second. It was funny when he, when he, when I first went to college, he was like, I have two pieces of advice. Don't, um, 
don't go to law school and never date a theta delt. <laughs> we're, his, we're, we're his two. Uh, Is that a fraternity he's talking yeah, about? Oh. Yeah, it's a fraternity at, at, at Dartmouth where I went to where I went to college. But um, uh, but yeah, and then and then after that, kind of decided he'd rather be on the business side and. He was um, very early in, you know, the founding of actually of AOL, and then he went and was in publishing and worked, you know, at a bunch of different magazines and and stuff like that. So, uh, always was kind of around that entrepreneurial mm-hmm. stuff, if if that makes sense. That's cool. And what about your mom? Yeah, I mean, my mom. Um, I'm I'm the eldest of five, so wow. yeah. So she she uh, definitely had quite quite the job, um, which is yeah. which is pretty funny. But before that, she um, you know she she actually launched um, the what's called the catalog for United Colors of Benetton. Um, you know, kind of prior to to going full blown full-blown mom status, but, um, you know, she, she did a lot of different stuff while we were, while we were young as well. Um, kind of partook in everything. That's awesome. And when you were a kid and your dad was kind of part of this entrepreneurial world, were you entrepreneurial as a kid at all? You know, I would say, yes, I I would say I was pretty fiercely independent and independent minded. Um, You know, I did stuff like I just remember being young and always thinking if there was something that didn't exist that I wanted to exist, just making it happen. Right. So like when I was in middle school, um, I loved to write and there was no literary magazine. So I like started the literary magazine. And when I was, um, you know, later, later in high school, uh, I was at when I was in Italy, actually, I made a bilingual newspaper for, you know, for the local town, because I was like, that seems like something we should have here, since there's so many, you know, foreign students. And um, when I was in college, I started something called Smart Women Securities, because I didn't think there was enough education around investing for for women at, at the college level. So I've, I've always kind of done stuff like that, if that yeah, I've always a little bit here and there. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I feel like I was actually very much like that too, which I didn't really realize was pretty entrepreneurial at the time because you're used to hearing like, oh, the kid that started the lemonade stand is making money in sixth grade doing X, Y, Z. You know, it's like, um, you know, they find the fun, maybe a way to monetize a little bit more. Whereas like, I'm similar to you. I was just like, Oh, I really want to take hip hop classes. And there's no hip hop classes here in the nineties in, in Delaware. So I guess I just have to create it myself, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. I was, I was exactly like that. Yeah. Which is very entrepreneurial. I learned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, def- it definitely is, which is, um, you don't think about it that way at the time. You're just like, you're just solving for a problem that you want done. Yeah. So you went to Dartmouth college. Um, how was the college experience? Cause you had already traveled so much for the world before everybody else your age yeah. you know? you had such yeah. a world view and here you're in college. What was that like? You know, I, I mean, I enjoyed myself, but I, I don't, I'm not like one of those like college go hards. Like by the time it was over, I was really ready for it to be over. And there were certain things about Dartmouth specifically that always really kind of irked me. Um, You know, I think the frat culture was, was really toxic. Um, And I don't think I realized just how toxic it was until sort of my, my senior year um, when I, I just was like, this is, this is a mess. Um, You know, I think that, there's a lot of great things about the school and the place, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I had a really love hate relationship, honestly, with mm. college in general and the college experience. I, um, why well, just because the fraternity guys or sorority girls too, or what sorority girls too, for sure. I mean, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in a sorority. Um, and you know, and, and I would be lying if I said at times I d- that didn't feel super isolating. Um, mm. but you know, I think there's, there's so much about that age and that stage of life where you're, you're so insecure, you're looking for validation from, you know, from your peers a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And, um, and I think people, they think they're grown up, but they're still pretty mean. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and I think um I think when you're in college and you know, and it's kind of it's clicky and and there's there's a lot of that. I think people don't understand how long that follows you either. 
Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you go to a school that that is so sort of networking intensive um, later in life, um, and there's a lot of alumni networks and stuff like that. It was, it, you know, I didn't always have the greatest of of times, and I think um, I think there's just also such a coming of age that happens during that time in life that mm-hmm. was particularly um, tough for me. Well, I wonder if you were just kind of ahead of the game a little bit because you had been drinking in Europe already but by yeah. being there, you know, and everybody else at college is like waiting till they turn 21 or trying to hide it. And you're like, what are you doing? Yeah, I've, I've been, been drinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been living out of the house for so long, you know, right. like, what else is new? I mean, it was funny because Dartmouth was like, was pretty much the first time that I had lived somewhere for more than a year consecutively mm-hmm. when I was 14 years old. Right. For everybody else, this is the first time they've ever lived outside of their home. So you're already like way ahead of the game and you're probably like, you know, you have such a different international perspective. You go in and you're like, oh boy, these clicks, you know, I don't know. Is that how you felt? Were you just like not able to identify with all these different clicks in college? You know, it was funny because like on yes and no, um, I think, you know, it's human nature to people just, people want to be cool and people want to belong. Right. And I think- But did you want to be cool and want to belong? Or did you not really care? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I did for sure. But, um, you know, but it was tug of war inside because sometimes that beast spoke louder than others. Um, And I think for me, you know, I I always, let's put it this way. I always had like the mental perspective of, you know, this, I don't, I don't necessarily need that stuff, but, but the heart, you know, and the emotional side didn't always say the same thing, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because it's, I don't know. I would say I was a little, I was also one of those people and I've been one of those people for most of my life that has a bunch of individual friends from different groups, but no actual foundational like group of friends um, that are all friends with each other. So it was a very, it was kind of strange like that where I had pockets of, you know, I have a friend who's associated with that and one that's associated Mm -hmm. with that, but none that to this day necessarily know each other all that well. Right. Yeah. You weren't like, okay, that cool kids group over there, I've got to find a way in. You're just like, man, just hang back. And I'll have a few friends that I think are pretty cool, no matter what they're into. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we had like, for example, at Dartmouth, they had, you know, sorority meetings or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, I would have non-meetings in my room where like a couple of my friends would come by and, you know, we'd like drink a glass of wine while everybody's getting hammered at their, you know, at their frats and sororities. And that was kind of like my thing. Oh, it sounds like your dorm or wherever you were, it sounds like it was pretty, um, like you could feel the impact of people away in their meetings. It sounds like that's interesting. Yeah. It's super isolating. And, um, at schools like that, if you're not part of one, because every Wednesday night, like everyone's doing their meetings, no one else is invited, you know, and yeah, um, there's certain like tales is what they were called at Dartmouth, where it's like socials between different frats and sororities. And if you're not in those, like you're not invited. And so there was a lot of that. I think that was annoying. Yeah. I mean, it (laughs) it was was definitely annoying, but it was, um, you know, it, it, it can take a toll to a degree, but Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you kind of learn to I'm surprised you lasted so long. You graduated, you stayed there for four years. I mean, I went to um, Eastern University, which I didn't realize at the time, but I think it was like the year before they had been called like Eastern, whatever religion, (laughs) you know, blank university. And they took it out because I think they were trying to, you know, broaden their scope. But I got there and I realized that, um, you know, I was the only one that wasn't super religious going to, you know, their Sunday morning, whatever they were doing. And so I would wake up in the morning on a Sunday, like kind of hung over from the night before wondering where everybody was. And it was ghost town because everybody was at church. And I'm like, I don't know if this is for me. I remember like two days in calling my mom and being like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> I don't belong here. What is happening? <laughs> Who are these people? Um, yeah. So I just, uh, it didn't work out. I had to leave. I transferred out after one semester. So I'm really impressed that you lasted for like four years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were definitely parts of it that were fun and, and, you know, and I made really, really great friends there, but, um, but again, they were, you know, it wasn't like the normal sort of group of sorority or whatever type yeah. friends. It was really sort of unique instances and, and people that, you know, that over time, I mean, they, they definitely were the ones that got me through. 
And I was, and I was kind of a nerd. I majored in math and English. Like I studied a lot. I was in the library a lot. Um, and I loved, I loved that part. I mean, I loved the education there and that was part of what, what really got me through, I think. So what were you, what was your goal? What did you want to be when you grew up or when you graduated? what did you want to do? I, you know, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be like a boss of some sort. Um, How did when, you know that? I don't know. I mean, I also five kids. I've always kind of, it's actually funny now that I think about it, looking back, you know, when, when we were super little, um, every summer I would sort of corral my cousins and all of my siblings to do this summer production that we called, um, GAG news. And it was like a, almost like a Saturday night live, like news show that we kind of made up, um, you know, and I mean, I was super young, like yeah. nine, 10, 11, just take my mom's camcorder and, and organize this, this big production. And at the end of the summer, it was a whole viewing and, um, just super, super fun, silly stuff like that. And I think mm -hmm. I've always just gravitated towards, um, being a bit of the leader of the pack. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that's just a birth order thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm the firstborn too. And I was the same exact way. My poor sister had to sit down and listen to me, try to teach her stuff so I could stand up at a chalkboard and pretend that I was some kind <laughs> of leader. I mean, I think it was like third grade when I thought I wanted to be a teacher because in my mind, that was the only leader I knew. So I was like, Oh, this person gets to go up in front of class, tell people what to do. And like, you know, it seems like a cool job. Right. So I thought that that, and she looked cool. She had this cool haircut and, you know, like, look really stylish. So my view of what a teacher could be was like, Oh, that's, that's a boss. I think I want to do that until I realized, you know, maybe I don't want to be around kids that much. And yeah, <laughs> there's other ways to be a leader. So, yeah. And right when I graduated, you know, I thought I, I wanted to go into finance and in my mind, it was like the power suit thing and, you know, whatever I, that couldn't have been less ultimately of what I wanted to do. I didn't really realize it, but similarly, like that was just, to me, that was like the Mecca. I mean, I have a whole rant on investment banking and all that stuff that I could go into at nauseum. But, um, but I think, you know, that's something that was really pushed at Dartmouth um, and something that I thought I wanted to do and just was totally wrong. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. It sounds like you were also probably a ringleader with your friends. Is that accurate? Were you the one that like was like, guys, we're going to go here. We're going to do this tonight. This is what we should do. And were you kind of like proactive in that way as well with friends? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Probably, um, I, I, less of like, a you know, like ringleader type because there wasn't that much of a ring to lead, you know, <laughs> um, but I've definitely always been like the hoster. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Um, you know, the one that had people in, in their room and organized things for, you know, events for people to, to come connect at. And, um, I've always been a big connector of people as well. So I think, you know, a little bit in a sense, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I was definitely one of those ringleaders where I was like, we're going to go to this place. I mean, I lived in New York for many years. We would go to nightclubs and I'd be like, we're going to go here. And I know this person there, or we're going to go there, you know, <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> leaning the pack. <laughs> um, not really intentionally, just that's how I, you know, operated and it just happened to work. I attracted maybe friends that were easygoing and like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I think that, I think that brings true for me too. I mean, it's, it, it, it was, again, like not intentionally so, but just, you know, the one that's kind of, um, I like being the hub of energy, you know, mm -hmm. I've always, yeah. I've always really liked that. And I, and I think, um, you know, and for me, it's just being, being somebody who has the opportunity to, to have, make sure people have a good time. And, um, you know, it's funny cause you're, you're 
like a leader of the pack like that, but, but it also puts you in the position of constantly being the one that's worried as to whether everyone else is having fun. Oh um, yeah. And wanting to be the designated driver to make sure we yeah. get there and back safely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Where it's yeah. like, yeah, let's all go do this. But then I'm constantly like, are you having fun? Are you yeah. liking this? <laughs> like you having a good time? Everybody's um, safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So a little bit of, a little bit of all of that. Are you born in April? Are you an Aries by any chance? I'm not. I'm a Cancer. Oh, interesting. I was yeah. just wondering. I'm like, I want my mom's an Aries though. My, mom, <laughs> my mom's an Aries. She's um she's full of fire. So maybe it, it comes from that a little bit. That's funny. So you knew you wanted to be a boss. You're you know doing really well in school. You sound like you really were a great student. And um, what ended up happening? Did you get any internships during school, or what was your first job? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I applied to probably, I mean, I probably wrote like a hundred cover letters. I was like one of, one of those people I was constantly interning. I was working at school too, as, as a waitress and, you know, and, and building these sort of like side things. And I, I, I always was very busy, mm-hmm. um, just working on sort of thing, things I wanted to do. And, and, you know, and also was, was somebody that was like kind of constantly trying to better myself. So a big like journaler and, and all the, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then when I graduated, I mean, I had also, you know, all sorts of interns. I, I interned at Condé Nast because I was really interested in content and publishing. And um, and then I interned at Bridgewater, where I ended up going right after college for a couple of years. And um, yeah, and I've, and realized pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be my life path per se. And I think that's when I kind of had a little bit of you know a, a reckoning of okay, uh, you know if I want to really go build something and do something, I need to figure out like my path there that doesn't necessarily have to mean being the boss the whole way through or like build, you know, you, you start small. And, and I think when you're an entrepreneur as well, like you forget and people forget that you started alone a lot of the time. Right. And so you go from, you know, these environments where you're surrounded by people to being totally alone, trying to build something in a studio apartment, you know, in my situation with my cat and, you know, and then, you know, and then bringing in more and more people over time. And, and it's, it's crazy how, how fast that can happen and how much that, how stark that contrast is. You mean between like being solo founder with an idea, trying to get it off the ground to all of a sudden actually being a boss and having a team? Yeah. I mean, it's, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. And going from, you know, going from like a corporate environment where you're constantly surrounded to absolutely no structure, no nothing. And then like back up to having to build structure yourself. It's just, it's a little, it's, you know, in terms of tactically, it's a roller coaster, um, right. as, as well as emotionally, but yeah. What were some of those? Well, before we go into that, cause I do want to hear about, well, did you start Bev then? Or is that what you're saying? Oh, I, so I, I worked in, you know, in sort of the hedge fund world, um, and eventually realized I wanted to start something. I wanted a change of scenery. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I've had so many addresses. I don't even know. It's kind of, kind of crazy. And I moved out to San Francisco and I actually took a job as an executive headhunter and everyone kind of thought I was crazy. Cause they're like, why the heck would you of all people go into recruiting? And I think, you know, there was, there was part of it. Um, in my mind, I was like, well, I'll get paid to meet people mm-hmm. in, and it's, it'll be my job to know people. And I know down the line, I'm going to want to start something and that would be a good sort of network to have. Right. And, and so I was kind of thinking long-term without necessarily realizing it. But then the other part of, you know, the other side of that as well was, I think I took that job thinking that eventually if I did want to stay in it, it was a really flexible job if I wanted to have kids and build a family. And, and that was something that I didn't realize until later was a subconscious driver of decisions I was making. Hmm. If that makes sense. I mean, it was kind of, um, it wasn't until sort of when I, when I moved out there, you know, I don't know if you've seen this or whatever, but I got, I got sick when I moved there and I had a lot of reproductive health issues. And so when I was 24, I was basically told, you know, you 
may or may not be able to have kids. You have to freeze your eggs. You have to do all of this stuff. You know, it was, it was funny. I'm like sitting in the doctor's office and they're asking me, you know, do you have a partner that you'd want to fertilize your eggs with? And I'm like, no, if I did, like, I wouldn't, what? No, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm 24. What are you talking about? And I think that was, it ended up being a blessing in disguise to have a job that was that flexible during that time in my life. Cause I was really, really in and out of the hospital for like 18 months. Mm. Um, but it was also when I realized that, you know, that I had been limiting myself in ways I didn't know. In what ways? Just, you know, I think there's for a, a lot of women, there's always something in the back of your head on, you know, will this be sustainable with, you know, if, and when I have kids, um, will, you know, if I'm so ambitious, you know, will I be able to find someone, will I be able to do all of, all of these things? And there's so much pressure on women to be able to do it all. And I think over time, what we've seen is like the scope of what women, of what's acceptable for women and what people, you know, encourage women to do has expanded, but it, really only recently has it started to expand that same way for men, right? And so in terms of men going from just the, you know, providers historically to also caretakers, that, you know, that window has been opening for women, but it's also just been, it's been taxing them more, right, um, over time. And I think there, there are a lot of us that that have those thoughts in the back of our head, but don't necessarily realize how active they are in, in day-to-day decision-making. Right. It's like this subconscious thing that you're not really thinking about day-to-day, but it's just back there, you know, when it's time to make a big decision, it kind of rears its head and it's like, wait a minute, don't you want to have kids? Don't you want to have a flexible schedule? Don't, how are you going to make money? You know, you got to keep your career going. <laughs> like, don't exactly. lose. You can exactly. lose everything. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, because you know, I mean, I'm super lucky. I met, I met my husband after I'd started Bev, um, in an airport and he is, he runs our marketing team. Now he kind of joined to help build the business. And, um, you know, it's funny cause I'd always imagined myself with someone just like me, right? Like someone who was, you know, a CEO or a this, that, or the other thing. And yeah. granted, he's, I mean, he's very much, um, you know, a powerhouse in his own right, but we could not be more different. Right. And, you know, and I think, um, and I think that that's, you know, I I realized at one point too, it's like, I don't want to be married to me. I want to be married to someone who wants to be with me and, and the compliment of me and someone that, that is excited, you know, to push me forward. And I think there was always something in the back of my head as well. That was like, you know, when, if I were married to a me, I would eventually be the one that's ex- expected to kind of step back. Um, and not that, you know, not that either of us intend on stepping back at any point ever, but I think that that's something that I realized a little bit later down the line as well, as I kind of, you know, my, my perspective shifted when, um, when a lot of my, you know, re- reproductive health issues came to light. Yeah. Definitely. That's interesting. You say that. I think that's so true. You know, I can imagine, I remember in my early twenties being like, Oh, the type of guy I'd want to marry. It's very similar. It's like, just like me wants to like take over the world and do X, Y, Z, whatever. And then you start realizing like, I don't know, actually, if that's a good match because (laughs) we're both never going to see each other. And (laughs) you know, maybe we're too alike and yeah, you just kind of clash. My husband is a, um, but one of my friends says this all the time. She says, I want a movie star at home, you know, somebody that, mm. that has a presence, but that's, that doesn't, that isn't necessarily a spotlight spotlight seeker. Right. And yeah. my husband is, um, he's a silent killer. Yeah. He has no, you know, he has no interest in being front and center and whatever. And he loves that about me that, that, you know, that, right. that I'm out there and that I, you know, that I'm <laughs> willing to do all of that, you know, that kind of stuff. And, totally. um, you know, he, he loves being the mastermind behind the scenes of, mm-hmm. of so many things and, you know, and, and that's, that's just been such a great match and such a great realization that that's, you know, that that's the kind of person that I need. And, right. I never would have thought it, um, in the early days of my life for sure. Oh yeah. totally. It's so funny. It's very, very similar to 
the dynamic between my husband and myself as well. I'm the outgoing one. I'll sell anything. I will, I'm passionate, you know, fire, whatever. And he's going to, the man behind the scenes that like keeps all the shit together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. You know, I actually, this might probably sound really silly, but since we're on the topic of business and relationships, I actually think that marriage comes down to like, you're actually hiring for a husband and, or oh. a, a good father. Right. And so it's like, you just got to check those two boxes, whatever those things are for you. And like, that's really what you're hiring for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a sense, for sure. I mean, we were, we were kind of crazy because we, we met, like I said, in, in an airport, a baggage claim and just fell super madly in love, like right away. Like we knew we were going to marry each other. It was in the first three weeks of meeting each other. It was like yeah. one of, one of, one of those things. But, um, so I, I feel super lucky in that sense, but also thank God we're also just so compatible. And we, I mean, not only was I quote hired for a husband, but I, then I also ended up, you know, he, now he actually works with me. So <laughs> Um, that was not originally the plan. He was very, he was like hiring for two roles. Who would have thought? I think very anti that, um, at the beginning, but eventually I coaxed him over just cause, you know, just cause he's so smart and, yeah. and so wonderful and, and it's, it's great to be able to work together, but I know a lot of couples can't do that. So it sounds like you found out pretty well, you guys knew, right? They say, oh, you'll just know. And I used to hate when my parents would say that. I'm like, what are you talking about? It makes no sense. Stop talking nonsense. What do you mean? And then of course it happened to me too. So, you know, we got married pretty fast. We got married in 10 months. Did you guys get married quickly too? We got engaged within, within 10 months. Yeah. Um, And then we eloped and we still have yet to have a wedding because of COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Us too. Yeah, like, together like three years, still no wedding. It's fine. <laughs> I think we're going on six or seven right now. It's, it's because I had, we had basically gotten married when I started my company wear away. And so I was like, love you, sweetheart. Let's go to city hall call today. And I need to get back to work. Love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened to us. So it's pretty yeah. funny, but so going back to, you had this recruiting job, your headhunter, um, you know, how did you transition from that into starting Bev? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I was having a lot of these health issues and I started, I, I was drowning in medical debt, drowning. And, um, I started throwing these parties to essentially try to raise money to pay off these bills. And, you know, like I said, at Dartmouth, a lot of frat scene, a lot of, you know, just dark energy when it came to partying, to be honest. And, um, drinking culture was, was just a mess. And it was always something that really bothered me. And as I started to throw these events, you know, I kind of got this, you know, newfound energy around what happens when it's a female owned social space versus a a male owned social space. And how does that change the dynamic of how people look out for each other and, um, you know, and, and treat each other. And, and, you know, I think there were a couple of things that came into play at that point in time. I mean, one, I was going through this, you know, what does it even mean to be a woman if you don't know if you can have kids and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and so there was part of me that, that was like, if I can't do that, I need to bring something into the world. Um, granted, having frozen my eggs and stuff like that, I think, I think we'll be okay, but we'll see. how. <laughs> um, but, you know, but then when at that point, I basically, a lot of limits like disappeared in my mind. Um, and I also was so, I mean, so in debt, so like distressed from my own body revolting against me in many ways. Um, that I just felt like I had nothing to lose. I was in many ways, I was at rock bottom, you know, and, and I think there, you know, the, the glory story, if you will, is, you know, I started all of these, you know, started these parties, really loved the vibe and that's all very true. And, um, and, you know, and I, and I, I had a brand and an ethos before I had a product, um, of like sort of a message I wanted to put out and, and a, and a dream I had about a different way of interacting and caring about each other. But I also think in the very early days of the business, I, I feel like I blacked out for like a year and a half and woke up like with uh, some semblance of an organization. Cause it just felt like I was, it was the thing that I clung to that got me through a really hard time. Um, after sort of all of the stuff that I'd been through, right? Like right after everything that I, that I went through, um, 
I was kind of immune to how much of an impact it was having on me while it was happening because it was just kind of survival mode, fight or flight. And it wasn't until afterwards that I that I got super depressed, was, you know, really struggling to to figure all of that stuff out and kind of had this idea and was like, if I can make this work, like this one thing, just this one next step, um, you know, maybe I'm worth something. I mean, that sounds that sounds really dark, but that's where I was at the time. Yeah. And I think that that played a big role, honestly. And um you know, in, in getting through the hard times, just feeling like there was really nothing to lose. And so how did you come up with the idea? I mean, you have these awesome, cool branded cans of wine that are like such a hit right now. And I've been for a while. It's, I mean, how did you come up with that? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what I wanted to, to address was drinking culture and, um, and coming up with sort of like a happier way. And the other thing too, that, you know, I think a lot of female driven products, um, in, in recent years have had a, have had a bit of an angry undertone um, when they're when they're like a highly feminist brand, if you will. And to me, that's never been the way, right? I don't think I've had so many great guys in my life who have supported me and helped me. I've also had a whole bunch of shitty experiences like most women, you know, um, but I'm not an angry person. And and I think part of me wanted to build something that could say, Hey, like there's a way that we can do this. That's unifying. Um, that's not, you know, that's approachable and, and that's really positive. And I think that that was kind of the genesis of, of sort of the message that I wanted to bring out into the world. And, and because I wanted to address party culture, drinking culture, it kind of was only natural to look at drinks, right? Um, it's hard to talk about a space you're not in. Um, so, so that was kind of how I landed in, in that specific category, um, and that specific product and, and wine specifically was, was kind of the thing that, that I kicked off with just simply because of a lot of the legislation that allows you to sell direct to consumer. Um, it's an industry that's so male heavy, that's so legislative, like so legislatively intense, mm -hmm. um, that I need, I knew I needed a way to contact, and sell to my consumers without having to go through all the loopholes of trying to get on a shelf, which you can really only do with a wine product. Interesting. You know, it's funny because way back in, um, in college or it's like right after college, I was thinking, I'm like, you know, these guys, they just go and they grab the six pack of beer to hang out with their buddies. Like, where's my six pack to bring with, to my girlfriends to like, hang out with, you know, and it's so funny to see that now there, you know, yeah. obviously because of you guys, there's this awesome, cool drink that I would have loved to have, like at that time, bring over to the girlfriend's house or to do what, you know, what girls do and hang out. It's like such a cool thing. But I remember thinking at that time, I was like, you know, it's really a shame that there's nothing. This is so gender specific, the six pack situation, you know, of like, carrying over individual cans or bottles of drinks, you know? How yeah. And I think they're so heavily branded masculine. All oh of them. yeah. There's a, there's a beer for every kind of bro. Right. Totally. And, and not, to, not to necessarily, you know, gender the products, yeah. but you know, I had people talk to me at the beginning too, where it's like, why is it pink? I'm like, cause it's my favorite color. Any other questions? Like, just cause I, <laughs> I like it that way. Like there's no other reason other than I like it, you know? And, um, you know, why, why we have the colors we have, because I like them, you know, and there's, there's just, just having that sort of unapologetic brand and point of view, you know, and I think that's, there's always, you can't be everything to everyone, but you can be a lot to someone. And, and that's, you know, what, I, what I hope that we can be. Yeah. So you decided you kind of realized, oh shit, this is actually happening. I have a company now. And what was that proof of concept, I guess, when you realized, oh, wow, this is actually really working. I think I, you know, need to start scaling or fundraising or whatever it was. How, what was that proof? Yeah. So, I mean, I would honestly say that I didn't even have much of a proof of concept. I just had some conviction when I started to fundraise and I was in a really tight timeline because frankly, because of my constraints around health insurance. So it, which is so funny, like so much of my medical history has weirdly guided things in my life that I was not expecting, but I, I had, um, I had insurance until the end of the year. I started the company in late May 
really kind of started, started in July and I had insurance until December. And so I was like, I have to raise enough money before December to be able to pay myself enough to have health insurance. And if I don't, I have to go back to work or I have to go back to like to school. Cause I yeah. was just gonna run out. Um, and so that was a huge driver in terms of lighting a fire under my ass. I was mm -hmm. not working at the time. It was all Bev all day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that was kind of the, the real impetus of being like, okay, I, I have to do this. I do, it's, it's do or die. Um, and one of the things I say to my team and that really got me through in the early days is the only way out is through like, that was just my mindset. Um, and so that's kind of what, what kind of started it all. And then once you, once, once I had some of that cash under, under my belt and, you know, and funding, then suddenly it was like, Oh my God, I like, I have to, like, I have a responsibility now. Like it's all is, of a sudden real. <laughs> yeah, this is real. Um, you know, and, and I have to figure out how to sell this stuff. And it took a while, honestly, because, you know, cause it was, there was a lot of supply chain infrastructure. I knew nothing about the industry. I was Googling simple stuff. I, I found our wine supplier from a guy I met on hinge. It was, you know, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I just stopped at nothing until, you know, until we had a product and, and a way to sell it. And so was that kind of like, um, a pre-seed round that you raised and what year was that? Yeah. So I, I raised a, a pre-seed angel round that was in 2017. And so how far did that get you and what were you able to achieve before raising your seed? That got us... Oh my gosh. I don't even remember, to be honest with you. It was like, it was, it felt like we were white knuckling on a roller coaster the whole time. Um, it, you know, it got us through, I guess, April, um, April of 2018 when, when we closed our, our seed, our official seed round, um, and, or 2019 honest. Oh my gosh. It's all blended together. <laughs> And I'm sure you made some like hires, right? With that, that first bit of cash. I'm not sure how much you raised, but, um, what were some of the first hires that you made and what have you kind of learned about the hiring process? What advice would you have? Yeah. So my, I mean, my very first hire was my, actually my cousin, who's our creative director. She was, you know, doing, helping me with mock-ups after work late at night, um, to make a deck and to, you know, mock up products that didn't exist yet and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it was, you know, Two girls I met in a coffee shop who just were straight out of school and complete hustlers. Um, one of whom is still with us today and is, you know, running sales or in Southern California and is amazing. And, you know, and I think it, it was at the beginning, it was just like all the help, I, like all hands on deck, the help I can get. And I'd learn a lot about hiring and building out org structures from being a recruiter, like at, at that high level, because you, you really start to understand what, what a company infrastructure needs to be like. Um, you know, I think the part that, that was hardest and that's been hardest about hiring is that as the company scales and grows, not everyone scales with it. And that, you know, I've, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the early days, you have a friend come work for you because no one else is crazy enough to do it. And, mm -hmm. at a, and at a certain point, you know, that relationship dynamic changes and you have to also be assessing whether that person is still right for that job and if they're doing their job and, um, you know, and if you can, if you can afford to, to have, you know, to have people who, who aren't quite scaling with you in the way that you need to. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned about the, the hiring process. It's just, there's so, when a company's changing so fast, so are your needs. And some people can flex with those and some people can't. And, that, and that's true for high level and lower level positions where I've also had situations where I've hired too high, where you know they're not necessarily elbow greasing, doing the, doing, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff that needs to get done because that's, they, they haven't had to do that for a long time because of their tenure right. um, where they've had teams below them, but now they don't. So it's really, it's not just the person, it's the timing, um, is a lot of what I've learned. 
What are some red flags during the hiring process that you feel like you've been able to identify early on or that you're like, okay, that's, that's a sign. Is there anything or any questions that you ask that are helpful? Yeah. I mean, your gut's always right. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. And the times that I haven't followed my gut, I always regret it. And I always know deep down, um, you always know deep down what's right. Right. And I think there are situations at a certain point where, you know, there's experience and there's fit and someone that has all of the qualifications for the job that's not necessarily going to mesh well with with other people on the team is gonna hold you back, right? And I think that's something that I've that I've learned a lot is that you really have to understand not only what that person's capable of, but what they're capable of in the context of what you have, right? And um, we, I mean, ego at the door here um, for sure. And that's something that that I think, you know, over time I've I've learned to detect better um, in the early stages, but you know, we all hit or miss sometimes. Yeah. You mean like people will try to oversell themselves, I guess, or say that they can do so many things and then they get in the door and they're actually just not performing on certain things that they said they could. That really I mean, that definitely happens. It happens to everyone. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think one of the things too is there's a fine line between taking bets on people and having people who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, is if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing something that's truly new and innovative, nobody's done it before. And so if you have someone that, that kind of claims to know, to, to know how to do exactly what you're asking them to do, especially in the early stages, um, that can be a red flag to me. Like there has to be humility around what we're doing because it hasn't been done in this way. Right. Um, and if it has, we're not going to win. Right. And so mm -hmm. really, having people who are, you know, asking questions, curious, um, trying to, trying to learn and learn from each other. I've found to be just so, so critical and not to be undervalued. Yeah, absolutely. So fundraising, you know, I know you raised $7 million in your seed round and now you're out raising a series a, um, talk to us about the fundraising process. How has it been? And what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced? I mean, fundraising is grueling and it's so grueling. And, and I think people don't teach you how to do it. It's a skill in and of its own, you know, in its own right. It's something that there's, there is a, there's a method, right. And, and I think a lot of the advice that's out there is, is wrong. Yeah, I agree. What's this method that you speak about? Cause I agree with you. There is a method. Yeah. So, I mean, think about marketing a product, right. And then think about your deal as a product that you have to market. So you have to create buzz. You have to build a like a competition between different people. I think a lot of the time, people, you know, the mistake that a lot of founders make is they go and they talk to one fund and they think that that's going to be the right person and they get dragged along and there's no urgency. Yep. Right. And so you have to create this sense of urgency, um, while staying true to who you are and true to what the business is doing, um, you know, and how you're performing there and there, there are tricks to the trade in, in doing that, right. It's the same as marketing a product. And you have to remember that, your, um, you know, your investment is just a deal passing someone's desk. And so how do you make that pop, pop off the desk? Right. Um, and I think a lot of that, frankly, is about how you get introduced. Um, in my personal opinion, I think a lot of times, especially in the early stages, when you don't have the numbers to point to, you don't have, you know, the historicals, later stages, it's different. Series A, it starts to get a little different, but in the early, in the early days, you need people who are going to go out there and vouch for you because they're investing in you mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, yeah. yeah, your, your network raises money for you in many ways, I think. Um, and you have to just be the person that, that manages that process and manages it pretty tightly. Right. 
So when it comes to like fundraising strategy, how much time do you give yourself to fundraise? Do you set like a sign and fund date? I mean, those are some of the things that I did fundraising that I found to be really helpful because you're basically saying, you know, raising around right now, here's when we plan on closing. Can you sign on this day and fund, you know, like whatever, two days later to wire the money. And so it gets them to commit to a timeline early. Whereas yeah. I've seen a lot of founders go without any kind of timeline <laughs> and in their head, they're thinking, Oh, we're going to close this month. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like, happened to me for sure. <laughs> that's for sure happened to me. I I've gotten better about deadlines, mm -hmm. um, at us, you know, especially at our, at this and our series a where it's, you know, we've had a situation. I mean, we had a situation this summer where it's kind of like, we're doing well. And then everyone's like, well, seasonality, you're not going to do well in the fall. Let's just wait to see how you do in the fall. Right. And it's like, okay, well, we're doing better than we did in the summer. So what do you want from me? Like, hush, um, yeah. seasonality, what? Um, but I think, you know, there's at a certain point you do have to push people, but there is a, there's a risk in that, right. And that you don't, and that they say no, and then you're up shit's creek. Um, and so that that's, it's a scary thing to do. Um, but it's a lot about pipeline, right. And making sure you have enough people in the pipeline at the same it's and timing it so that it's at the same time. Yeah. It's truly a numbers game. I mean, you know, I think what happens sometimes too, is founders will be like, Oh, I have, you know, a meeting with so-and-so a meeting with someone, you know, it's like, I've got lots of meetings and it's kind of maybe only three or four and you're kind of, are, they're putting all their eggs in those baskets, you know, cause they've got a meeting or they have a second meeting. And it's like the likelihood of this investor saying no is very great. <laughs> so they're always looking for reasons to say no. Yes. So the number of meetings you have, doesn't really have any reflection on like whether or not they're going to say yes or no. Um, you know, and just asking the right questions, I think early on as well, their check size, like doing your own due diligence very early before you waste your time with three meetings, four meetings, whatever it is to realize, Oh wait, they only, you know, fund series a, and I'm doing a seed round right now. <laughs> oh, for sure. And, and making them, you know, I, I try to start my meetings like that nowadays where it's like, okay, what stage you do? What's your investment thesis? What's your process look like in terms of timeline? What's your check size? Do you have a ownership thresholds? Like, Getting all of those things out fast, furiously, and early, um, I think is is really important. Yeah, that's excellent advice to get that out early. Um, I think that most of the time, the founders are approaching it as, please, can you give me money for my startup? You know, instead of, I'm giving you an opportunity, what do you have to offer me? I want to know if this is, exactly. I don't have time to waste. Exactly. Um, and that's the attitude you have to have. To yeah. And, and for, for people listening, just so you know, I got over a hundred no's. I spoke to over probably, yeah, I mean, over a hundred people for our, our series seed. And I was getting, I, I mean, I, I joke with my husband, I was like a morning no was my cup of coffee every single day yep. um, for, you know, half a year. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I'm glad you say that because numbers are important to share that like you, I guess, probably what pitched 200, you know, investors to hear half of them say no, or more than half say no. Um, and a bunch of them just like ghost. <laughs> yeah, right. Love those. Yeah, those ones are great. They should be fired. Honestly, I feel like every time there's an investor that goes, I may, you should just go to the co-founder and say, you should fire this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like no IMA on founders. It's not fair. It's really messed up. I hate that so much. Me too. It's yeah, it's not cool. It's like, just give us a no. We're going to, we know you're going to say it. Just send the email. Don't feel bad about it. It's your job. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be an investor. <laughs> a fast, a fast no is the kindest thing someone can give you aside from a yes. Right. Because otherwise they're sitting there in your pipeline without any kind of status next to it because they're not answering your emails. So frustrating. And then it's so frustrating that you will never refer any other founder to that fund ever because you're like, they're the worst. They and I think founders have started to get smarter about that and started to communicate with each other more about that. Definitely. Yeah. So any investors out there missing out on some deal flow, maybe it's because you went to MIA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so don't do it. <laughs> um, so 
That's awesome. This is really, really good advice for fundraising stuff. I'm glad that we brought this up. I think it's so important. I think also there's real quick, one thing too, that a lot of founders think about is like, oh, I don't want to overexpose the startup. Like they're afraid that if they talk to too many investors at once, that it'll actually reflect poorly on them or that the news will be out that they're doing what they're doing and it'll somehow be picked up by an investor who will share it with a founder and they'll go run off with your concept or something crazy. I think it's like this very insecure protective thing. Maybe it happens mostly with first time founders where they just don't want to share too much with their investors so, or they in general. So they keep the investor pool very small, which actually just hurts the fundraising process a lot. For sure. And I think at the end of the day, look, it, it's, there's, it's all execution. Mm -hmm. And so who the heck cares? Like if <laughs> exactly your stuff at the end of the day, they can't execute it. That's fine. And if you, and you should have, you should know that you're, you're going to be the best at executing your idea. So, so what if they see it? Yeah, exactly. It's ideas are pretty cheap. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about one of your most challenging moments. I know fundraising can be really challenging, within building your business, I mean, you guys have had such insane growth with 200% month over month. Um, there's probably tons of challenges that have happened from that kind of growth. What are some of those things and how did you overcome them? Yeah. I mean, so last year was not that kind of challenge. Last year was a, oh my gosh, are we going to survive challenge? Um, and, you know, and having to do that without losing confidence of, investors of team members of all, all that stuff. I mean, it was, it was scary, honestly. Um, and in the beginning of this year and COVID hitting, I was like, Oh God, all right, here we go. This is uh, this is the cautionary tale. This is terrifying. Um, and then the growth hit and, and the problems became very different, you know, like cash flow, extremely tough to be spending, you know, to make a million dollars or to make $2 million in, in my world, you have to, you know, spend, a million north of a million bucks just on product that will drain the bank account extremely quickly. And so just because you're doing well, doesn't mean you're comfortable, right? It, it's, it can be really, really scary to scale that fast and not, you know, and be out of stock. And in our case, you know, I, I can't be out of stock with target. They'll just drop the product entirely right. forever to get back in. That's just like not an option. And so figuring out, okay, how do I finance this? I don't have enough historicals to like get debt financing because it's happening so quickly. The amount that I can get isn't enough to cover inventory. You know, um, having to kind of reassess what team structure looks like in those situations and going back to, you know, going back to people after having a tough year while you're having a great year and being like, no, I swear we're really doing extremely well and we need more capital mm -hmm. um, is tough. And I think all of those things can be true at once, right? Where you can be quote unquote doing well and scared shitless. Um, yeah. and you can be doing great and have 300K in your bank account when, you know, when literally two days ago you had $3 million because you had to buy all this product, right? right. And I think th that's an, a common misconception um, that, you know, that, that a company that's, that's doing well is always okay. Cause that's not the case. That's such a good point. It's so true. I think we're all guilty of saying, Oh my gosh, the growth numbers are crazy. You know, they must be making so much dough. And then really they're just spending all their cash on inventory and barely surviving, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for sure. Cash flow is hard. It's hard. And that's, that's one of the things I realized too. It's like, even if you're, even if you're profitable, you know, I have a friend, I have a friend's company that's been profitable for a year and she's, it's still cash flow tricky because of the inventory management that they have to do. If you overproduce, you're sitting on too much. Like there's, there's all sorts of new issues that come into play. Um, and so I guess the main takeaway I would say is that the problems don't get easier. They get different. Mm. Um, and that has been a learning for me. That's interesting. What's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader, founder, CEO? We were talking about this a little earlier. Like it's different when you're one person coming up with an idea, working by yourself. And then all of a sudden you've got to start building structure and having employees and team. And you really, you develop from kind of like founder to a CEO. Um, how big is your team now? And how has it been growing into your leadership role? 
Yeah, we're 21 or 22 now, um, you know, and that's been over the course of about two years, um, some, something like that. You know, the biggest thing I've kind of learned is, it, this sounds brutal, but like your feelings don't matter. <laughs> and it, it doesn't, it, they just don't. And you need to, you need to find a, a fountain in yourself because otherwise there aren't that many, you know, you have to be the fountain for other people. And so you really need to learn how to motivate and pick yourself up and resilience is so important. And I think that's something that, um, that was a rude awakening, right? If you have laying somebody off for the first time is hard. Laying somebody off ever is hard. Like firing someone is horrible. Mm -hmm. You don't get to feel, you don't get to feel about that because it's harder for the other person. And, you know, and I've also kind of learned that when I am down and out, like truly when I am at my wits end, um, that is when it is most important for me to show up for my team because they're feeling that energy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's something that's just been a huge, uh, awakening for me and being a leader. Um, it's, it's, it can be exhausting. <laughs> I know. I mean, there's no one really to pat you on the back, you know, like, it's not like investors are like, you're doing a great job. It's more like <laughs> looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I think we did all right today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Let's try this again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, about that persistence, that, you know, resiliency that you're talking about, what do you do to build your resiliency muscle and stay strong and there for yourself? Oh my gosh, I cry. <laughs> um, I try to exercise it. I, you know, honestly, I'm not particularly good at it. I don't know that anyone is particularly good at it. Um, it, it really, it really varies and it varies on what level of, of stress I'm in, in that moment. Like there are definitely times when I've had healthier ways of coping than others. Um, yeah. and you know, and especially in the early days when you're that stressed out and you're usually pretty financially stressed out personally too, right? Because you're, you don't have the money to pay yourself and, and you're burning the candle at both ends. You can't necessarily afford to like take a vacation or take a break, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the same way that you can in later stages when you, when you have a real working salary. So, you know, I think, I think for me, it's been, the biggest thing has been protecting my weekends honestly. Um, and you know, my weekends are sacred. If you try to reach out to me, especially on a Sunday, I will not respond. I, I thought for sure you'd say you just drink lots of Bev Rosé, like <laughs> where'd uh, all the inventory go? Not, uh, no, no, definitely, definitely not. That's not the best way to stay clear headed. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's definitely been a moment or two where one too many Bev's has been the solution to the problem, but, um, you know, but it's, I definitely think protecting time and pacing yourself, especially, yeah. you know, because you will burn yourself out if you don't. Having weekends, being able to check out and really kind of unplug, especially as a founder, is really hard to do. So that's good that you're taking some weekends. Like, don't contact me on the weekend. I'm out. Yeah. Good to yeah. Have balance. Yeah. I, I just, I think it's important, especially, you know, later down the line is, um, as there's just more demands on your time. Yeah. You know, another thing too, with founders, I think as well is, um, the identity situation where, you know, you as a founder, you work on this company for so long and it's like really part of who you are. And you kind of, at least for me, um, with my company, you get your kind of self-worth or your own identity. So wrapped up in, in the company, do you do things to kind of separate yourself from the company in a way where you maybe refer things, you know, like, do you have any tricks to kind of separate those two things? I mean, I work with my husband and my cousin um, and my friends, you know, now, I mean, not now they're my friends in, in terms of management. Um, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, you know, Bev is me. I am Bev. It is, you know, it, it has, you know, it's, it's our, our family, um, at this point, you know, with, with my husband and I working on it together and, 
I'm not good at that at all. So I have no advice for that, except that if you have any, just give it to me. I wish I did. Um, I'm just hoping on the next round, maybe I'll figure it out. So I'll keep you posted. Um, yeah, please do. <laughs> so before we wrap things up, just one final question um, or two, you know, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or other founders out there listening? I think it, you know, if you're in early stages, just keep going. And I know that sounds so silly and simple, but it, you know, I think founders often fail because they give up. Um, and there, there is a way to build something that, that you want to build and that you're proud of. And, and you just, you really just have to keep going. And, um, and the other thing I would say too, is, you know, don't be afraid to lean on people. Um, they're not necessarily going to understand what you're going through, but that doesn't mean that you can't take that time to like accept love from your family or your friends or whatever it is, um, without necessarily having to say, you know, you don't get it. Um, and I think that's something that, that can be tough to do when you're in the thick of something that a lot of people can't relate to. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, don't give up. It was there a moment when you kind of had to tell yourself that I mean, this morning, yesterday, every day, no. tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> every day, honestly, every day. I mean, I think I I've been working on this for, for so long that it's, it's easy to get to a point of, of burnout and exhaustion and, you know, how do I, how do I keep, how do I just keep going? Um, whether things are going well or poorly, whenever you're fundraising, doesn't matter, doesn't matter how great your company is going, you're going to be exhausted. Um, yeah. you know, and, and just being kind to yourself. Um, you know, I feel that way like every day. <laughs> and finally, what is um, next for Bev? You're in Target stores. What other stores are you in and what's next? Yeah, I mean, we're in certain states in, in California, Texas, Tennessee, Massachusetts, Colorado, and Arizona now. We're in kind of a little bit of everywhere, Total Wine, BevMo, Target, Safeway, Albertsons, Vaughn Pavilions, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can buy us online in 44 states and we'll ship to your door. Um, and next year, we're, we're going to be expanding pretty quickly, um, both in terms of, of product and, you know, and footprint. So I'm pretty excited. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on all of your success. And thank you so much for sharing your amazing story and your time in joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.